there's not one night growing up I didn't dream of being in the Olympic Games. My doctor said, Nate, you never walk the Olympic competitive sports are just not in your future. Didn't know if I would, you know, be the athlete that I dreamed of, but I wanted to find out. That was Nate Reich, and this is episode 87 of the Inspired Souls podcast. Hi, I'm Carolyn, and I'm a roadrunner. And I'm Kim, and I'm a trail runner. Welcome to our podcast, where we bring the communities of trail and road running together and explore the parallels between running and life. Nate Reich is one of the biggest names to emerge in Canadian para-athletics in the last few years. He burst onto the international scene in 2018 with world record performances in the 800 and 1500 meters, and since then has continued to lower his own records in the men's T38 category. Last summer in his Paralympic debut in Tokyo, Nate earned a gold medal for Canada in dominant fashion in the 1500 meters, letting out a victorious roar at the finish line that made Canadians proud. A freak accident on the golf course at the age of 10 resulted in a brain injury which affected the right side of Nate's body and changed the course of his life. Doctors said he may never walk without a limp, but this only fueled Nate's desire to work hard and make it to the top of sport like he'd witnessed so many others do in his unusually athletic family. Shortly after recording this conversation, Nate was awarded the Paraambulatory Athlete of the Year by Athletics Canada. We think it's safe to say that at just 27 years old, Nate has a very promising career ahead and it will be exciting to follow along with him on the track as well as with everything he's doing to further the para-sport movement. So without further delay, let's get into it with Nate Reich. All right, well, we are here with Nate Reich. Nate, welcome to the show and thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to it. Yes, we are so excited to talk to you. And I believe, Kim, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe you're our very first Olympian that we've ever interviewed. So we can't wait to hear all about your time in Tokyo last summer. But first, let's lay some groundwork because there is so much more to your story, right? And perhaps most notably, an incident that happened on the golf course when you were in middle school. So can you start by telling us about that day, which I have to imagine significantly changed the trajectory of your life? Yes, definitely. Definitely did change my life and never thought golf would change my life in that manner. But yeah, that day at the time I was living in just outside of Phoenix, Arizona. And uh, we were driving our parents a bit nuts before our all-star baseball tournament the following day. So I think they kind of shoot us out. And we, we definitely wanted to play golf too. Um, and so, you know, when anything kind of uh, freak accident or anything happens, you know, it usually starts off pretty normal. Um, you know, playing okay golf, trying to not get too many eights on the scorecard and um, just having fun with my friends. And then on hole seven, an older group of gentlemen asked to play through and they were in carts and we were walking. And so obviously we were way slower than they were. And so they said, why don't you hit your balls and then go stand under the tree about 150 yards left of the fairway or so. And it was really hot that day. Fahrenheit wise, it was like 110. So it was, it was a hot July summer day for sure. So they were just trying to take care of us. And I still remember uh, we got under that tree and I was just talking with couple of my buddies and I remember looking back and seeing he had like this Nike SQ driver which when you hit it it kind of sounded like a tin trash can Um, so I kind of remember it having that like 
that sound that kind of ping yeah that no other driver had at that time and and then all of a sudden I felt like this numb tingly sensation just go over my body and I'd been struck in the head by a golf ball and I think sometimes when you get hit so hard everything just goes numb and I called my mom and said hey can you come pick me up and anyone who knows me knows I'm a sometimes uh you know I I I like to sell the story every once in a while and so I think my mom at that time was like come on Nate like you paid for 18 holes like you're really gonna call it after seven Um, so but I was pretty demanding and usually I would kind of like give up on the story if that if I was like just teasing her or something and I was like no like I, I just got hit by a golf ball um, and so uh, the gentleman who hit me drove me up to the clubhouse. My mom picked me up. I remember her like squeezing my hand. And I could squeeze my hand, but my arm was slumped. She knew quite a bit about the human body. And so she was like, well, um, let's drop your friends off first because the hospital can kind of be a scary place for a 10-year-old, especially a couple 10-year-olds. Um, and so she dropped them off. And by the time we got near Phoenix Children's Hospital, I could kind of see a panic in her face and all of a sudden, I'd become fully paralyzed on the right side of my body. And then I remember us getting to the hospital, my mom asking me to jump out, and I couldn't. I was dragging my right leg, and she helped me get into the hospital. And we finally got back to our room, and then I had my first seizure. And that was uh, kind of my oh crap moment. Definitely a lot of things were in my favor being so young and not knowing what paralyzed meant. That was a word that was thrown around a lot in the hospital but I had no idea what that word meant I know there's a song like paralyzer but that was like the only thing I knew around that word so I figured I would just walk out of the hospital a couple days later and next thing I knew was uh, almost a month spent in the hospital and it it was really tough going from one day you know I think a week before I pitched an all-star baseball game where I struck out 12 or 14 batters and now I can't even wiggle my right toe and uh, so that was a very eye-opening process, and uh, relearning how to walk was probably by far the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life. It was just really demanding, and I feel like just really mentally frustrating because it's such an easy task that I did before, and now it was anything but easy. And um, yeah, it was definitely a really tough time in the hospital. But I think like all bad things that happen, a lot of times there's a defining moment, and. For me, it was in my exit interview uh, prior to leaving the hospital. And my doctor said, Nate, you never walk without a limp. And competitive sports are just not in your future. And once again, anyone who knows me knows I'm pretty fiery. So didn't listen and was like, I'm going to prove you wrong. And didn't know if I would you know, be the athlete that I dreamed of. But I wanted to find out. You're talking to two physiotherapists here. So forgive us if we ask some of these. You know, We want to focus on how you've excelled, you know, in the Olympics particularly, but to put that in full context, to understand how, you know, how far you came, I have to ask some medical questions. So which side of your head did you get hit on? Did you get hit on the left side? Left. Yeah. So left. Yeah. Which causes opposite side paralysis. And I know you ended up with a traumatic brain injury as a diagnosis, but like, did you have internal bleeding, like hemorrhaging as well? Yeah. internal bleeding and a skull fracture and I guess I kind of skipped out on part of this but uh the bleeding in my brain just randomly stopped like my neurosurgeon was like it's a miracle because they were gonna play the waiting game because they thought if they go in they would do more damage to the clot and so they 
um, wanted to play the waiting game because they also knew that I was a very athletic person. And obviously, they, if they could salvage that, um, they definitely wanted to. And so, you know, it's anything in that crunch time is, a, you know, sacrifice or a oh, risk. Or, for sure. Um, but I'm very thankful that, um, you know, we did that. So you never had surgery. You never had to have a decompression or anything like no, that. They wow. were they were thinking about it and they're like, let's check it again. And it just stopped. Mm. And then what was your function like when you left the hospital a month later? It was, it was pretty good. Like it, it came back kind of fast um, once I walked finally. Um, but mm-hmm. honestly, it's, after I left, like it didn't get a whole lot better. Um, so it was mm-hmm. like kind of a quick jump. Um, but didn't, didn't get that much better. And I'm sure running helped my leg quite a bit, but my arm, I mean, my leg's still weaker than my left side. Um, and then also my arm is significantly weaker than my left. Obviously that creates, as you both know, Im- imbalances and, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of that. And luckily my uncle is the person who's kept me healthy my entire life uh, with a massage background, but also with his, all the NASM certifications here in the States. And um, so, yeah, he's honestly been a lifesaver. If it wasn't for him, I definitely know I wouldn't have gotten to Tokyo last year. So I have to ask, and I know you're going to get into this in a minute, but so, you know, you, you've talked about how just walking was such a huge mental fatiguing thing. And then you left the hospital and it didn't change that much for a period of time. At what point did you take your first running step? Like when did you actually start to run and what was that like? Were you really driven? I need to run or did it kind of just happen more organically? When did the running come into the story? Definitely. Yeah. Um, So my goal in the hospital was to walk out of the hospital on my own will. And I, I, I did that and running I guess more jogging came pretty close after. I got out of the hospital on a Saturday and went to school on Monday. And I'm also a bit, I uh, like to drive my mom a bit crazy. And uh, one day she found out that I was playing soccer at, at recess and she about was having a heart attack. And I was talking about, thinking about hitting the ball. And she was like, Nick, what are you doing? Um, and then I kind of navigated towards basketball and our running club coach was helping make the team. So I still believe that I was good enough to make the team, definitely not to start or be like a significant role, but I still believe I was good enough to be on the team. But I believe that he cut me because he, or helped cut me because he knew that I was going to be a good runner. Um, ah. And then I ended up doing running club in that in fifth grade. So I got hit the summer going into fifth grade. And so I would say mm-hmm. two or three months into fifth grade. This is when I started running cross, uh, running cross country, and uh, definitely they they knew I was competitive. And uh, every half mile or eight hundred meters, they would give you a, a popsicle stick, and whoever had the most popsicle sticks at the end of the year, you got like this cool necklace and everything with like a, a foot that represent like every ten miles. And yeah, I'm I'm I'm, I'm pretty competitive. And, uh, that worked for you. <laughs> You mentioned that you're fiery and, and you mentioned, I just want to go back to something that you said that the doctor had said to you in the hospital of like, you know, you can kiss any dreams goodbye, essentially is what it sounds like he said to you. So how much do you think that plays into like motivating you when somebody tells you you can't do something? Yeah, definitely. Um, today, I would say it doesn't motivate me too much, but back then it definitely did. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I wanted to prove him wrong. Now it's more I want to prove myself right. Um, so mm. it's kind of switched a little bit. But definitely, I mean, I think when I race, though, I do go to like a very dark place. Like I think there's people who think of happy thoughts and things that make them smile. And I do not think of things that make me smile. Um, when I'm jogging, I think of like happy things. But when I'm trying to run sub 350 in the 1500 meters, I definitely am not, I'm not <laughs> uh, joyful all the time. That's for sure. Wow. Okay. So, you know, after you've had your accident, um, you're a 10 year old boy, you know, going into puberty, wanting to be independent, you know, find your own way. What was it like in those years afterwards as you adjusted to life with a disability? Um, what challenges you face? How did it go for you? Yeah, yeah, it was it was rough. Um, definitely, I stuttered really bad, which kind of made me a vocal point for. I don't really like to use the word bullied, but definitely made fun of a lot for that. Like I, I couldn't tie my shoe, uh, and my fifth grade teacher, uh, Mrs. Iverson, had to tie it for me, and I would drop my plate at lunch all the time in front of everyone and get made fun of, and especially when I read out loud, like I would just stutter and stammer. And so, yeah, that was really tough. I feel like that was an insecurity that took me a long time to get over. But any insecurity, any problem I had, my mom always helped me, you know, really get over it. She um, talked me into being a public speaker um, for uh, Children's Miracle Network at golf tournaments to help fundraise money because that money helped get me those resources to recover better. And so when I made that connection, it was my biggest fear for sure and ended up becoming one of my biggest passions now. So really thankful for that. But yeah, it was really, really, really tough at the time. And kids aren't particularly kind at that age. Like if somebody stands out in any way, right? Isn't that like what kids latch on to? And yeah, that must have been so, so tough. Now, you, you've mentioned your mom a bunch. And I, I've heard you say that she was the best mom for you or your parents were the best parents for you. What did you mean by that? Definitely. So um, my stepdad and my mom are um, just, they're, they're number one, just great parents. And I don't know, I feel like me, I'm, I'm well, I do well with like truth, like, like don't, mm. don't beat around the bush, just mm -hmm. be honest with me. Um, and so they do a really good job. Like my mom was always like really pushing me. And then my stepdad was always kind of the support. Um, which my mom was supportive too, but it was uh, support in a different way. And I think coming from, you know, a boy to his dad, I feel like every boy needs that. Um, and so he played such a great role. And I think he really stopped playing sports and definitely for my mom, but also for me to be able for me to play sports and, you know, have enough money to do that. And I think as I got older, spe specifically when I turned 25, I really understood like the sacrifice he made. I think I always, always really appreciated him, but I think when it, it really clicked when I got older and I think, you know, during that type of injury, there's two ways to go. Parents, you know, will coddle someone or really push someone. And I personally don't think there's a wrong way to do it, but they definitely pushed me and wanted me to be successful. And they knew that I was a big dreamer and set really big goals for myself. And, you know, I was writing a blog the other day and I said, like, there's not one night growing up, I didn't dream of being in the Olympic Games. Really? In running? Or what did you think you were going to go to the Olympics for? <sighs> when I was young, it wasn't really clear. I definitely wanted to play baseball. That was definitely my first love for sure. 
growing up in Arizona and the Diamondbacks winning the World Series in 2001 and him being um, my stepdad played professional baseball, went to the College World Series, was roommates with Aaron Boone, who's the manager for the Yankees, um, and played many years in MLB. And so I was just around a lot of MLB players and always wanted to be that. But yeah, I don't know necessarily. I think it started becoming running around probably 10 or 11, but um, yeah. yeah, I was, I've always been a big dreamer. You just want, you just like something hanging around your neck. You were motivated <laughs> as a young athlete to get that foot on the necklace and <laughs> eventually yeah. it needed to be a, a Olympic medal. Got in the banter at the, at the dinner table. I very much like to win the banter at, at the dinner table. And there was, they had a lot of things on me, like way above me. And I was like, all right, I need, if I want to win this banter, I got to be, try and be the best athlete in this family. And that's not going to be easy. Right. And this might be just about the perfect time to talk about this very, very unusually athletic family that you come from. A lot of kids dream of going to the Olympics, right? But you actually had models, several models in your family of people that had made it to the top level of sport. So can you just take a moment and humor us and tell us about some of your relatives' accomplishments and maybe what influence this might have had on your own accomplishments your own eventual accomplishments yeah it definitely yeah so i guess the one that's um probably especially in canada the most famous is my grandpa jim harrison who played 12 years at nhl played with wayne gretzky and bobby orr and scored three goals in 24 seconds and 10 points in one game pretty amazing athlete and then my grandma Liz Harrison was on the Team Canada equestrian team. My mom was Canadian national champion um, in 2000 at the Olympic trials. Uh, my dad was the NCAA U.S. champion and, and Olympian in the javelin. Uh, my stepdad, Ben, who I was talking about earlier, played professional baseball for the Giants and got second at the College World Series. My stepmom high jumped and made the top five, I believe, was her, the best finish she ever had at USA's and then my cousin George M. Moline got fifth at the Olympics in the 400 hurdles and my uncle played rugby um geez there's 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 a lot of us that's for sure and I always tell everyone my my little sister Avery is the best of them all so um I can't wait I can't wait to see what uh, what all of my wonderful siblings do so for a lot of people saying I wanted I'm dreaming of being the Olympics is really a far reaching dream. Like they don't understand the context or the significance or the work that might go into that. For you, it was just another thing <laughs> that, you know, it was, I guess what I'm getting at is it wasn't a super unattainable goal because you had lots of people that had done it. At the same time, you don't get something for nothing. Like you still have to earn that that spot at the Olympics. But back to Carolyn's question, I'll, I'll bring you back to that of how do you think having all these role models and, and influencers in your life shaped the trajectory of how it went? Yeah, definitely. I think there's two things that when you say that kind of pop up my head. Number one is parents, I feel like have to really preach hard work but I feel like my parents didn't have to preach it as hard as maybe you would have to because I saw it every day in and out and also perseverance. Like my mom had me in 1995 and she won her national title in 2000 being a single mom for a lot of that. 
she definitely didn't have the perfect training because she had to deal with me and I was um, I'm definitely trying to run away, trying to, you know, be a, be, be, be a brat. I don't know if I've changed too much over the years, but, um, so I, I know her training wasn't perfect. And I think seeing her persevere and win that, uh, national title always stuck with me and, uh, still does to today. So, um, yeah, I think it was really impactful and I grew up in that environment. I think maybe that question mm-hmm. for my siblings might be even dip even, you know, maybe different answer, or it could be the same answer because they've seen me compete and they've seen, you know, they saw me at the games on TV and, you know, I achieved my, my goal and, um, or at least one of my goals. And I know they have very high aspirations too. And, you know, our family isn't uh, a big pressure family. It's like, um, really, as long as you're giving it everything you got, that's our, that's, you know, that's the big family motto is that if you don't give it everything you got, then, then we have a problem. But, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, you have to play sports growing up, but I mean, if, if you find something else you're passionate about, my parents would be more than happy for, you know, to let you go chase that. Um, so it's definitely not all about sports. I think sport can teach you a lot of things um, that carry over to the business world or just life in general. But yeah, I'm super thankful that I grew up in that environment. Well, and the power of belief, like to you, it wasn't unusual. It was normal. It was like a why not type of situation, I assume. And, you know, for your mom to achieve the level of athletic success she did when you were old enough to remember it, right? To observe it, to remember it, to to see that as normal is unusual, but also, you know, something to consider like you said, your, your sister's now going to observe that in you as well and, and carry it forward. Who knows? Who knows what the next generation is going to bring in your family? Like, wow. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm, I'm super excited to have my popcorn ready and uh, ready to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> so let's jump to the present moment for a, a second. So you are dual citizenship, right? You're um, American and Canadian? Yes, correct. Correct. Okay. And so where are you living and training currently so after tokyo uh, i moved just after the new year i moved to uh, alfreda georgia which is about 40 kilometers north of atlanta where uh, my family my mom stepped out and uh, three of my siblings live so that was really important for me because in uh, we can talk about this more later but in my you know journey to tokyo i didn't see my family for a year and a half because i thought to get in the best shape in my life i need to be up in victoria and um, really not do a whole lot and just train my butt off and find out how good I can really be and have my coach there every day and, you know, go to the gym, make sure someone's watching me. And at that time, you know, I knew I was making a sacrifice, but, you know, my parents and my family knew the sacrifice I was making and they were super supportive. But, um, and after Tokyo, I definitely knew I wanted to do this next cycle, them being a bigger part of it. So yeah, I'm in Alfreda, Georgia to answer your original question. Okay. Okay. So Georgia, but you do compete for Canada. So what made you decide to compete for Canada rather than the U.S.? Yeah, there's definitely a a couple of things for sure. Part of those, you know, every summer going and visiting my grandpa Jim up in wherever he had a campground or in Kelowna early uh, in my life, I always just loved Canada. He had such a pride for Canada that I always connected with. Um, and then I think when I was old enough to understand the sacrifices that my mom 
made for me. I was always really wanting to tell her thank you in some way. I know I'd never be able to repay her in full, never close, but I know, um, like, I don't feel bad about this, but it's in my eyes, it's just the truth. I think she didn't make the Olympic team because of, because she had me Mm. and she had to make those, those sacrifices. And I thought maybe if, you know, if, if I achieved, you know, my goal and she had such a huge hand in it and, um, you know, that phone call after Tokyo was definitely a very cool one. Um, so yeah, she was a reason. And then my grandma Liz, who passed away when I was really young from breast cancer. And, um, I just heard about how awesome she was, that she was like my mom, um, maybe a little bit more intense, which is sometimes hard to believe. Um, but, um, so those were my three really, really big reasons. Um, and, but really a big thank you to my mom. You're the first person who has ever brought tears to my eyes on a podcast. Wow. That was really, really special. Your mom's a very lucky mom to have a son like you. Oh, thank you. I'm very, I'm very lucky to have her. That's for sure. So maybe now might be a good time to talk about the Paralympic categories. Okay. So Fill us in, anyone who may not be familiar. What is the the classification that you compete within, and and what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so mine's T thirty eight. The T stands for track, and the thirties are all like coordination imp- impairment. And the higher, as in the eight, the higher the number is, the more function you have. So T thirty eight is the category with the with the least amount of disability in the coordination impairment classification. We're actually combined with the T37 class, which has a little less mobility um, than we do. And that's definitely been up for debate and conversation. And I think a lot of it is um, definitely don't think it's Michael's fault, but Michael McKillop from Ireland, you know, ran faster. His world record, he was a T37. He ran faster than the T38s for, I mean, 10 plus years. And so I think, you know, their thought process was, um, well, it's basically the same class like they yeah he runs way faster than i mean it was like six or seven seconds like it, it wasn't even in the same ballpark um and so they ended up combining those classifications is that to make the competition better for everybody or or what's the thinking behind combining the two i think that t- his time was one of them and yeah just to have higher numbers i would assume yeah. so um i don't think we've ever gotten a clear answer from the IPC but that's just from the rumor mill is kind of uh, what what we've heard and you have to go through a classification process where you get on the table and they do a budget test they see you run in practice they look at all your medical information and then they see you race um, because in, in, in a race if you have to react to a move um, you know you can't fake anything I mean it's, yeah. it's I mean you just see <laughs> right. how you normally run and um, so yeah. So w- would there ever be a situation where someone is categorized as T38 and then after a while they get put into T37? Like, does that, is it, is the process ever revised along the way? Yeah, it's revised every cycle. So you get like, um, you get reviewed every four years for our classification. Obviously there's some classifications that are more permanent like an amputee. Mm-hmm. And some might be uh, progressive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially with blindness um, or mm-hmm. vision impairment, you definitely see a lot of degenerative conditions right. um, over the years for sure. So 
a lot of the Paralympics is, I mean, relatively young. I mean, it's been around for a minute, but compared to the Olympics, you know, it's relatively young. So I think they're still working out a lot of the kinks for sure. And who, who makes the classification? Like is each country responsible for reviewing their own athletes or is, is like a central Olympic committee responsible for that? Yeah. Um, so the IPC has like classifiers that I, I would assume there's a certification process for them. And, um, a lot of the times you can't have your own country, someone from your own country. Yeah. But if you do, you have to have a different, like sometimes you, you have two classifiers. So if, if there's only an option for a classifier that's available from your country, then there has to be one from another country. Um, and I think the, the one from the other country, like really calls the shots mm-hmm. kind of thing. But, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but also, I mean, if sometimes, you know, being a classifier, I'm sure is not a lucrative um, job. So there's not that many out there. And you got classified in 2018. Is that correct? Correct. And then I got reviewed uh, in 2021, which was a bit crazy because I was supposed to get a full cycle out of my classification, but because of the pandemic um, and they didn't yeah. honor a full cycle um, because it got pushed back. So then we had to, yeah, it was crazy. It was a bit of a Right nightmare. before the Olympics. Yeah, it was yeah. like a couple months before. I was like, oh, this is, this is uh, stressful. It's stressful for sure. Yeah. Okay. But so you got classified in 2018 and you kind of like, came onto the scene then, correct? And and 2019, you did a couple of world championships. Is that right? Yeah. So 2018, I got classified and I want to say it was about around May. And then in June, I set the two world records in Berlin, Germany, which was super eye-opening. Like, like, let's be completely honest. As I said, I'm a very blunt person. Like I was a very mediocre college runner. Like I was not that good. And I had no media coverage at all and after i set those two records i was like whoa this is interesting and was it in the 1500 like what what was your time for the 1500 what was the world record at the time it was like 402 and i think i ran 358 it's been really cool over the last couple years especially i mean i ran 358 and then dion kenzie from australia ran 355 and then I ran 352 and then I ran 347 so it was like we were really really starting to starting to push each other and a new guy just got classified who ran through 352 so we have another Australian that's really good so um, definitely our classification is super exciting but to kind of circle back to your question 2019 we had Parapan Am Games in Lima Peru um, and they only had the 15 there for me so I, I ran the 15 and uh, was fortunate to get first and behind me, Liam Stanley is a T37 from Canada as well. Got second. So that was really cool. Liam and I have become pretty good friends. We were just at training camp together and then we went to the world championships in Dubai, uh, which was, that was a whole experience in itself. Um, but then I was to race Michael McKillop who has never lost to that time in, uh, in international competition. So that was very interesting. Definitely going to. And how did it go? Good. I won. Um, Yay! <laughs> that was that was pretty cool. Almost got tripped with seven hundred meters, and there's a I wouldn't call it famous, maybe uh, infamous clip of me turning back 
because in my opinion, he was trying to trip me on purpose. And I looked back and the big meme slash joke was what did Nate say to, to the guy? And then I just <laughs> took off. Um, and so my coach was on the other side of the track and I was supposed to like make a move with like 400 to go. And I made a move with like a thousand meters to go. Oh. Um, so <laughs> definitely, definitely, I think it made coach a little bit nervous. Um, right. So uh, yeah, it's pretty funny. Yeah. So those races are, there's a lot of jostling and a lot of like bumping around and you have to kind of go on your, your instincts is for what I understand. Would that be true from your experience too? Is that how it is? Yes, absolutely. And I'm super fortunate that I raced like D1 college track and I ran competitive high school track. Like we raced so much that I, I mean, I'm definitely learning. I mean, I'm not even going to try and say I, I know everything because it's not, not even close to that, but I feel like I've been in many situations and have learned to what to not do uh, for sure and what to do. So um, definitely really thankful that we come up with like a plan, but at the end of the day, I really have the autonomy to do what I really want because my coach really trusts me and I have a pretty good in, in, internal clock knowing what paces I'm running. So, um, so yeah, it, but yeah, it's definitely something it's like, it's a crapshoot. It's like, you never know what you're going to get. You know, you usually have a slow race plan and a fast race plan. Um, mm -hmm. and usually that's, it usually it doesn't go medium pace. It's usually slow or fast. So. Okay. So walk us through what it was like in the lead up to Tokyo, like when did you know that you were going? That's a really good question. Um, I believe it was like late June, early July is when the team was selected. Um, so not a That's whole late. not a whole lot. Luckily, like the first, the top three of us, we were pretty certain we were going because um, we had just really competed really well that year and had some mm -hmm. big PBs and. So, I mean, I was preparing for the Par the Paralympics for the entire year. Like I, yeah. like I wasn't, you know, thinking about, am I going to make the team? I was just planning, like I had made the team and was just trying to prepare because it's getting the peak right. is really tough. Um, and so thankfully my coach is, I mean, Heather Henninger, she is, I feel like one of the best coaches in the world. I say she's the best coach in the world. I might be a bit biased. I understand that, but um, <laughs> she's just such a, such attention to detail. And um, she's really collabs with me and allows me to have input, which is something with Mike Van Tegum I had and with her I've had, and those are the two coaches I've had the most success with as well as my mom. So it seems like, like those three people who actually um, just like, let me not necessarily write the workouts, nothing close to that, but just like, putting my input in or saying, Hey, like, I think I might want this or this. I really like this. Um, you know, cause I am, as we talked about before we started, I am a running nerd and I do love to just look <laughs> at training and listen to coaches and just find stuff. We don't know like. anything about that. Do we, Carol? <laughs> no, 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 not at all. <laughs> but, but you make it a really interesting point there. And I think a lot of runners know this, but maybe some don't is that there's a real art and a science to being ready, like mm -hmm. in your top peak shape on the right day. So in the lead up, like, did you have to qualify? Like you're talking about, you know, not knowing until June or July and, and weren't the Olympics in, or the Paralympics in 
late August, early September. Yeah, yes, 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 they were. Yeah, um, so you, you kind of got to be in peak shape to make the Olympics, and then you've got to maybe come down from that a little bit and then get ready and be in peak shape again for the Olympics. So what did that look like for you? Yeah, so there was a there was a time that we had to hit. And to be honest with you, I have no idea what the time was. Um, I was so motivated and convinced I was going to break 350, and I knew that was way under the time. Um, but I wanted to be the first person in my classification to break 350. And so I was locked and loaded on that. Okay. And my first race, the RN 352, second RN 350. And I was like, oh, I have never been so mad at a PB. <laughs> I was so mad. I made so many tactical mistakes. So many. Like I oh, probably should have ran 349 in that race, but I, I just, you know, got too excited with 400 to go, mm -hmm. saw the clock, and I was like, oh, I'm going under 350 for sure. There's no way I'm not going under 350. And then my pride got the best of me and just yeah. absolutely tightened up. And my right side just completely fell apart the last 100. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that might be the slowest last 100 I've ever run in my life. That was uh, that was pretty funny. Oh, no. <laughs> So sorry, this was during your qualifying. Yeah, that was during the during the the qualifying period, and and so really, I just had my mind on breaking three fifty. We went to Chula Vista for I, mean, I felt like it was seven weeks, and I just locked in. And honestly, I didn't really do too much outside of track. Um, I had my one of my best friends, Tom Normando, who's on the national team with me and he is him and I are definitely goofballs. Like you probably see, I'm definitely like, I have two parts of me for sure. I'm a very intense person, but I'm also a complete jokester and love stand up comedy and stuff. So I feel like him and I were just making each other laugh for seven weeks straight and then just training as hard as we could. Um, so I was so focused on just breaking three, three fifty Cause I, as we talked about before, I believed I could do it. Like I, I was so certain that I was going to do it and I just kept having these great workouts. And so I just knew mentally if I could get to that level where my physical shape was, I knew that I would be able to, uh, yeah, to break, to break, break, break 350. And if I broke 350, I knew, I knew, I knew, I knew I could be beaten, but I knew if I ran my race and uh, tactically a sound race, it would be pretty hard to beat me. And my biggest thing was I always wanted, if someone beat me, I just want them to really earn it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So just, just again, for our listeners, 350 wasn't the qualifying time. You said you didn't know what the qualifying time was, but it was probably not anywhere close. Above four minutes, I think. Above four minutes. Okay. Yeah. So there was no, I mean, on a, on a really terrible day, I suppose maybe you wouldn't have made the standard, but this 350 thing was just you putting that pressure on yourself to to know uh, that you had the confidence to line up against anybody at the Olympics and and do your thing right yeah. is that is that fair to say definitely I think like I mean I'm in running to just test my limits and I don't know where mm -hmm. my limits are they're going to be somewhere and like we said earlier when the doctor said I couldn't I wouldn't walk without a lamp or no competitive sports um you know, I could have listened to him or I could have said, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm going to try this thing and right. kind of just yes. took that kind of mentality to 350. And, um, I didn't, I didn't know if I would do it. I believed I could, but, um, so yeah, that was, that was kind of where my focus was. So 350 is kind of like your four minute mile or two hour marathon. Like it's, it's sort of that limit that it, it's like that barrier that 
mentally and physically you you want to explore. Is that what I'm hearing? Definitely. I mean, now it's now it's three forty. I'm always setting. I'm, now it's three forty. I'm always <laughs> okay. So here's where I have to ask the question. We know you ran three fifty in qualifying. We know you you set a world record at three forty seven. What did what did you win the gold medal with? What what time did you actually run at the Olympics to win Canada gold? I ran three fifty eight. Yeah, it was definitely significantly slower. Um, if we want to talk about the race, I'm more than happy to kind of dive through it. Or I don't know which which Can direction. We? <laughs> you won that race. I've watched it many times, and you won in dominant fashion. But it was like pouring rain that day yeah yeah <laughs> so yeah let's let's get all into this race like mm-hmm. um you're in tokyo you're on the it's the same track that everybody had just been at at the olympics right the, yes, it correct. was the same facility on that day walk us through your headspace like were you do, are you somebody that gets nervous or anxious before a race like what does that look like in your world Definitely, yeah. I think I think let's just back up just just, just a little sure. bit. So we went to Gifu, Japan, two weeks before going actually into the village, and you know, there's a lot of things as athletes. There's different things that really give us confidence. And having my uncle, who's uh, the main therapist who has kept me healthy my entire life, he gives me the most confidence. Um, he gets my body to a place where just no one else can get it. <laughs> He's amazing. And he was there with you. Yeah, he was in Gifu. He wasn't in Tokyo. Oh. Sandeep and my uncle Trevor are kind of my two guys for sure that um, that I um, really, really trust. So, And was he, sorry, was he part of the Athletics Canada team or was he like your personal guy that you had over there? Like, So they needed one more person. And Carla, who's the head of the Paralympic program, asked Simon Nathan, who's the head of high performance, if, um, yeah, if he would approve it. And he did. And, uh, you know, my uncle, you know, definitely the Connecticut chain approach and he's a goiny amateur and measures all the major joints. And it's very, very detailed um, and all based on, on uh, science or UNC Chapel Hill. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's uh, really, really kept me healthy my entire life. And, um, and I know all my numbers and I know what the optimal number is for my hips and my ankles and everything is. And so, um, I know if they're there, that gives me even more confidence and mm. my body was, yeah, in tip top shape and was awesome. And you were literally fine tuned. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> the bolts were tightened just right. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. And, uh, we did a workout. I want to say it was like eight days out. Um, and we had my coach, Jeff, who was an Olympian in the 800 in 2012, ran 145 and he was acting as my competition and he made like this weird fast move off the front of the line and i was like that's not gonna happen like come on like i don't even kind of like like i and i ended up finishing the workout like felt amazing coaches said i looked amazing but i was like that was kind of like a really really weird move to make and i'll definitely talk about that later during the race because it almost was foreshadow it was like deja vu it was crazy but um, going into the day, I was very nervous. I get very nervous for sure. I feel like when you see all your competition, it's when it makes it even more nerve-wracking. And it was raining, like you said. I started jogging and my right leg, like, yes, it works not as good as my left side. But, you know, there's, there's, there's a range where I'm just used to it working. But the thing is with the traumatic brain injury, sometimes your nervous system just 
it goes haywire and it just doesn't mm-hmm. work properly. And my leg was not working. I was freaking out. This was in your warm up. That was in my warm up. Oh my goodness! Oh my. So I was freaking out big time. And then I had this conflict, like internal conflict. Like, do I tell coach? I know if I tell coach, yeah. she's gonna probably be freaking out too. Um, and so I said, well, I have to tell her because if we can solve this, I'm going to really be kicking myself if I don't tell her and we could have solved it. So basically we just did some mm-hmm. really short 40 meter sprints, um, but it still wasn't feeling that great. Um, but I was also really nervous. So I was trying to figure out like, was it my leg? Like, am I just so nervous? Like I felt yeah. like, I mean, I felt like I could like feel the pulse in my throat was like i felt it was like beating out of my throat i was like this is well it's the biggest stage ever right yeah this is crazy because like world champs i was i was dancing i was totally chilling like so this was what do you think the difference was yeah i don't know i don't i don't i don't know what it was i mean i think this is the pinnacle of it all and Mm -hmm. um you know Mm -hmm. i think we've we put so much into it too and you know i I spent that time away from my family and definitely pandemic delayed things. Yeah, it was really tough. And (laughs) finally, you know, you sit in a call room for 45 minutes and finally we get up to the track and we're all just like, Oh, thank goodness. Like we're, we're out at the track. And uh, I remember it raining and a lot of the good countries in my classification are pretty warm countries. Um, And I remember hearing some like uh, complaining about that it was raining. Um, and I was like, huh, that's interesting. Um, and for me, like, I live you in, use whatever you can get, right? I, I, <laughs> Victoria, yeah, I was like, I, I live in Victoria. This is like a, this is like a Tuesday. Yeah. Um, so, um, so yeah, definitely grew a lot of confidence from that. And I thought it was going to be a very slow race and then I was going to make a big move and it would be like them chasing me down and just me hoping they didn't catch me and them hoping that they caught me. Um, kind of type thing. That's kind of how I thought that it should play out. And the Frenchman went out fast, just like Jeff did in the in the practice. And I, in my head, I was like, "This is perfect." Um, so we hit like sixty three and a half, sixty four, and I was like, "Oh, this is great!" And and then I was supposed to move way later in the race once again, um, but then I was like, "I'm not gonna go faster." I'm going to run the same exact pace. I'm going to hit, I'm not going to go slower, but I'm just going to hit the same exact pace. And I did that, got to 800 meters. And I was like, Oh my goodness, this race is wide open. Like I was confused. Like I, I know I kept looking back like until the finish line and my mom gave me so much crap about that. Post-race. <laughs> was like, you could have ran away I think you're okay. You were so far ahead. <laughs> it, it wasn't even me. Like, I was just confused there for a while. I was like, there's no way. Like, these guys have run fast, so I don't know what's going on. And then with 400 to go, I was like, well, if if I, like, something doesn't major happen, like, I, I'm pretty sure I got this, but, like, then you have to, like, snap your head back to, like, hey, Nate, like, you got to finish this race. Like, these guys are really, mm-hmm. really good. And then with 100 meters to go, that was kind of when I let <laughs> I kind of let it go a little bit. And definitely, like, I like to show the most respect that I can for – you know, my competitors and things like that. And I was like, Nate, don't scream over the line. And of course, what do I do? Scream bloody murder <laughs> at the line. Just I just screamed yes is what I was screaming. Um, and of course, there's 
wonderful pictures of all of my veins popping out of my neck and all of my buddies <laughs> of me and when I get back to my thoughts. Hey, you just won an Olympic gold medal. You can do whatever yeah. the heck you want. Definitely. If there's ever a time in your life where you're allowed to celebrate, it's mm. got to be at that moment. Definitely. But yeah. yeah, I just, I remember getting back to my phone and just laughing, but um, <laughs> just being like, oh, you guys suck. Um, but then, yeah, I remember like jogging over to Heather and Carla and getting the flag and just being super amped. Um, and then kind of uh, about did some interviews and then I was really trying to rush back to my phone to t- talk to my mom. Um, just really wanted to, to talk to her and, um, I could tell she had been crying a little bit. Um, and Aww. she's not, I've seen her cry once. Um, so, um, that was pretty special and she was really, really proud of me. And then she made me fun of me for my speed suit and for looking back and we definitely laughed a lot about it. And, uh, <laughs> it, it was definitely a good time. It was only in, you know, mother Tucker fashion that, 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 that she would tease me about my speed suit. And, um, funny enough, like I did tell my brother Max, I was like, Hey, I'm wearing a speed suit. Don't tell mom because she's going to be late, but I'm, I'm young. like, wait, wait till I come out on the track. Um, so yeah, that was definitely, oh that was definitely a planned, like funny. Movie. I love that you called your mom right after. And, um, yeah. was there, a, there were no spectators, correct? At the Olympics this year, no one was in the, other than your coaches and, and that there was no yeah. crowded stadium. Yeah. There was definitely no outside crowd. There was like staff mm-hmm. and, um, yeah, just staffing coaches and athletes pretty much were the only people in there. And I've heard some athletes say like that really makes a big difference. Like I think it was Usain Bolt or something that was like, I wouldn't have been able to compete like that. But how did you feel? Did it bother mm. you that there was nobody or was it neither here nor there for you? Nah, it wasn't a big deal. I mean, I run track and field, okay. uh, distance runner where a lot of meets are late at night and there's like a hundred people yeah. there. So, um, definitely yeah, yeah, yeah. I would have loved it to be packed. Like don't get me wrong. Like I would have loved it. Right. I would have definitely fed off that, that, that energy for sure. Um, mm-hmm. but I'm in, you know, if I'm lucky enough to make Paris, I'm super interesting in cause I felt really calm when I finally got on the track and I wonder with a lot of fans, mm-hmm. is that going to amp me up even more when I get on right. the track and see everyone, right. okay. especially with my mom and um, siblings and girlfriend, like who knows, like who's going to be there and you know, that might even, yeah. Yeah, so it'll be interesting. It'll be a new challenge for sure. You know, we've, we as a, I don't know what we means, a community, countries, the world come a long way when it comes to Paralympic sport. What work do you think still needs to be done in this area, in your opinion? Yeah, I think in my opinion, definitely just the awareness of just, I've never really met someone who didn't like Paralympic sports, just they just don't understand it. So just, getting more eyeballs in front of it. And just, mm-hmm. I think that's not only on the IPC. I think that's on us as athletes. And um, definitely, I know there's different philosophies. And I definitely think that we can um, partner with the Olympians to support each other. I know some people want it separate, maybe just because I come from that world. Um, and I just have so much respect for the Olympians. I think that we can do big things together and you know, us athletes are starting to take it more serious now. Like we're starting to get to a point where we can really do it full time. And sure, there's um, not everyone can do it full time, but I think corporate sponsors are starting to come in and, um, you know, we're starting to be able to, to get to that point. And there's a lot more grants 
from my understanding than there was eight, four, four years ago. So I think we're definitely mm-hmm. trending in the right direction. And definitely I'm really excited about the Lululemon opportunity um, that we're going to get. Um, and hopefully it'll be, you know, they'll sponsor uh, many more athletes and um, hopefully there's quite a bit of pair athletes in, in that movement as well. And yeah, a multi-pronged approach, right? Like for sure the athletes are able to tell their stories a lot more freely now, right? With social media and podcasting. And I know you have a podcast and you've interviewed mm-hmm. lots of athletes yourself. Um, does anybody stand out to you as somebody who's sort of doing it very well, like sort of um, advocating for themselves uh, in a way that inspires you? Yeah, Marissa Paps, Paralympian, uh, 100-meter bronze medalist, um, single leg amputee. Um, she's like kind of my counterpart. So I don't know if like look up would be the, would, would be the proper word, but mm-hmm. uh, I think I'm, I'm very proud of her um, for what she's done with her brand and, um, you know, being a Nike sponsored athlete. And um, I, th- I think that's the really next big step is to get corporate sponsors to take on Paralympic athletes and um, not just athletes where the disability is visible. Um, you know, the next step is kind of like mental health. You know, you can't see it. A traumatic brain injury, you can't see it. Um, C- mm-hmm. uh, CP, you can't see it a lot of times. Mm-hmm. And so I think um, that's kind of the next step. I mean, of course, my disability is invisible. So, um, of course, I want to, you know, push that. And I don't know if I'm going to get, um, you know, all of those opportunities. And um, But I want it to just be better for the next kind of generation and, you know, hopefully Mm -hmm. because the the generation before me did so much for me, Um, you know, it's crazy how much the movement's grown and probably 12 years ago, you wouldn't have had Lululemon, you know, wanting to, you know, sponsor both. Maybe, maybe for those who don't know, can you talk a little bit more about the uh, Lululemon partnership? Yeah. So um, Hudson's Bay was the sponsor. I don't know for how long they were. I believe it was, maybe eight years or so, something like that. Um, and so they basically, you have village wear. And so they will be the sponsor of the village wear from what you wear in the cafeteria, what you wear walking around, what you wear in your room. If you're going to train at the village, um, you have to wear their clothing. And so I think they do such a good job of leisure wear, but also in media as well. They have, I mean, uh, for Christmas, I got a couple of their like nice dress shirts and I mean, they're super comfortable, but also they're um, stylish, or at least people tell me they're stylish. I'm not the most stylish person in the world. So um, my, my girlfriend tells me it's stylish. So I'm like, all right, sounds good. Um, so yeah, I, I think they're a really good partner. And yeah, I'm just really looking forward to seeing what they do and, um, you know, how they push the Paralympic movement forward. Yeah, that's exciting. Okay, so there's something you said just a few minutes ago that just has been rattling in my brain ever since. You said that we as para-athletes need to partner with the Olympians. Do you not identify as an Olympian yourself? Yeah, that question has gone around a lot recently. Um, Greg Stewart, I don't know if uh, either of you know him. He's 7'2", shot putter, um, who, got, who won gold at the Paralympics, and he put out that question Paralympians do you consider yourself an Olympian or or Paralympian do you care if people call you an Olympian and for me like I don't care if you call me Olympian or a Paralympian but I am very proud to be a Paralympian um, because 
obviously all the Olympians who know me know that I have nothing but love for them. But almost every Paralympian has a story outside of sport as well. You know, there's there's a lot of people obviously want to focus on the performance, and like I totally think you should. But a lot of times, you know, when they're talking about paying us for medals and things like that, they don't include the journey that we've been on to walk or, mm-hmm. you know, the, just the journey to try a sport again. Um, right. And so they don't include that in our performance at the games. And so I think because of what I've been through and what a lot of my friends have been through and teammates have been through, um, I guess I'm just, I'm just really proud to be a Paralympian. And I have the logo ta- uh, tattooed on my chest right here. And, um, mm-hmm. so, uh, it's definitely, um, you know, a lot of people will get the Olympic rings if you're a pair, if you're a Paralympian, but it was important for me to get the par- the Paralympic logo. And, um, yeah, that's just really important to me. Well, we just touched on it before, but you do have your own podcast. It's called Strides with Gray Wolf. What's the significance behind that name? Tell us a little bit more about your podcast and what made you want to start it. Absolutely. Um, number one, I was really bored during the pandemic. So <laughs> I needed something to do and um, kind of, yes, kind of full circle to go back to, you know, my insecurity of my stutter. I kind of wanted to challenge myself mentally and just, you know, sport is so, I mean, it's very mental too, but it's so, so, so physical. And since I got out of school, I felt like I wasn't using my mental muscles as much mm-hmm. as my physical. And so I really wanted to kind of approach that and I, I went back to like, what do I love? Like, what is one of my favorite things to do at World World Championships? It's to sit in the cafeteria and just hear people's stories. That is yes. one of my favorite things to do. Um, and so I was like, why don't I just, and it's an excuse to be able to talk to all, to my friends uh-huh. who I feel like as teammates, <laughs> we don't get a chance to talk other than like at like big meets or something. So I wanted kind of that, that excuse as well. And the name of the podcast, uh, my middle name is Gray Wolf. My great grandma on my dad's side is full blood, uh, flathead, Native American, and it's they've changed their name now. It's it's like the Confederate Kootenai tribe, I think it is. Um, so they kind of changed their name, but it's on the on the Flathead River, just past Hot Springs, Montana. Um, so um, yeah, I'm very proud of my middle name, and I always love it. Obviously, anyone who follows me on social media, it's Nate Gray Wolf and. Grey Wolf is in everything. I don't know. I just always thought that was really cool. Right. Growing that's up. cool. Um, yeah. And so. Thank you for explaining that. That's that's a really, really cool yeah. backstory. And so what's been your favorite thing about being a podcaster so far? Yeah, just uh, just being a fly on the wall for, for the conversations and learning how to interview people too. It's like trying to figure out because, you know, you, you give your own opinion on certain things, but you also want to just let the you know the, the guests you know you want these questions to get you know the most out of them and hear hear what they mm-hmm. have to say and also let them say what they want to say and so um that was definitely not easy at first i i thought it was going to be a bit easier than it was and um definitely for sure definitely started with my friends like my close friends which was definitely easier but when i got to people who i knew like solid but not i didn't see them at practice every day it was definitely definitely different and i really enjoyed it and i made some friends from it too there were some people who i reached out to that i didn't know that well like there were big track names like aaron brown who yes. has always i listened to that episode yeah he's, he's always <laughs> aaron brown oh i love him too he's been such a sweetheart to me 
um, but we never mm -hmm. really talked track before, like talked talk shop. Yeah. So it was really cool yeah. to uh, be able to yeah, talk, it was a great interview. talk to him. Oh, thank you. And yeah, just really cool to, you know, now we're better friends for it too, which is really cool. Mm -hmm. Sounds like your experiences paralleled ours in many ways. Yeah. <laughs> we started out interviewing people we knew, our family, our friends, and uh yeah, it's it's almost it's an interesting dichotomy because when you interview somebody you know, I found myself I tended to ask more leading questions because yeah. I knew what the answers might be, but it was easier to talk to them. Whereas when you interview somebody you don't know, you have to ask more open-ended questions, mm -hmm. but it's less easy to talk. Yeah, it's kind of an yeah. interesting juxtaposition. Anyways. <laughs> well, I think we could talk all all day, but I we do want to respect your time and we have a few little quick, you know, rapid fire questions that we ask people at the end. So, first one is um when you're out there doing your 1500, I know that race is over pretty pretty quick for you, but um do you have any mantras or self-talk that that you say uh to to kind of stay in it the whole time? Yeah, it's there's there's been a lot over the years. Tucker Strong was one of them. My stepdad's last name is Tucker, and he had cancer, skin cancer, um, and we all had like wristbands um, that said that. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote it on my shoe and really wanted to be tough like him. Whenever it got it got tough, and when I ran through forty seven, saying that I'm tougher than anyone, even though I'm probably not, but it doesn't matter. But others think it's if it's my truth, then then that's mm -hmm. really good. And then I. Um, a lot of times I just try to tell myself to relax, relax and smooth, relax and smooth. Mm -hmm. Cause when I get tired, my shoulders, at least it feels like my shoulders go all the way past my ears and yeah. I get super tight. And so just trying to keep the body super, super relaxed. And so those are kind of yeah. relaxed. Running is fast running. Absolutely. I wish I would have learned that earlier. That would have helped me out a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you've, you've trained and lived and ran in a lot of different places. What is your favorite track to run on? Favorite track? I don't think I've actually been asked that before. Um, I would say uh, I'm, I'm just going to go with the Flagstaff, Arizona at NAU uh, up in the mountains. There's just something about being in the mountains and just training hard I feel like there's just something about being in the mountains though there's just i don't know there's just just uh, i agree i feel like it makes me train harder um yeah i just i just really enjoy it we were just in flagstaff and and took a drive by that track but incidentally we uh got hit with this gigantic snowstorm when we were in flagstaff at the end of february early march so the the whole track was covered in snow but it is a blue track isn't it yes correct yeah. Okay. I, through a little bit of the snow, I think I could see that it was a blue track underneath that. Very cool. Um, okay. Do you have a, a bucket list event uh, or race that's that's coming up or that you would just love to do? Hmm. So one that's coming up that I am doing is I'm running in New York. I've never run in New York before. So mm -hmm. that's mm. definitely one that I am doing. And then one that I haven't done would be race at Hayward Field uh, uh. at Eugene, Oregon. And my brother is going there for uh, Nike Nationals for high school, um, wow. and uh, and he we had lunch together today, and he rubbed it in my face that he's going. Oh to run no! Me. <laughs> <laughs> he's racing there at Hayward Field. Yes, yeah, he runs the eight hundred in the decathlon, and he is he is fast. Yeah, he ran one fifty five as a ninth grader. Yeah, he can. Oh my goodness! He can oh run. My goodness. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> it's blazing. Yes. Do you have a favorite running book or movie? 
The movie would have to be Prefontaine. I feel like that's such a cop out answer. But um, <laughs> I also do really like Running Brave, uh, which is about Billy Mills. Oh, yeah. Who I got to meet when I was younger. And mm. um, he won Gold in Tokyo. Friend of the family. <laughs> uh, actually, yes. Um, so, <laughs> um, and yeah, he won his Gold in Tokyo, and I won mine in Tokyo. So that was, that was, that was pretty cool. So 1960-something or? 64. Okay. Oh my goodness. Very cool. All right. Final question. Do you have a favorite post-race indulgence? Oh, only one. Um, <laughs> you can give a couple. <laughs> I definitely love a good blizzard um, from Dairy Queen. Um, mm-hmm. And then I love like uh, alcoholic beverage. Um, mm-hmm. So um, a lot of times I like a glass. I like to sit on the couch with um, my girlfriend and my parents and have a glass of red wine and just just chat and we chat about the race but also just chat about st- story mm-hmm. tell that's you know i, I yeah. love hearing stories so that's it's probably probably my favorite yes so okay do you have good dairy queen blizzards down in Ari- in arizona yeah i know i've never been able to find in georgia <laughs> good or sorry georgia a good Dairy Queen when I've been in the States and I, I went to school down there too. And I was constantly searching. Oh man. I, I love Dairy Queen. I love the Butterfinger Blizzard. That's like, it's, that's my go-to. Okay. 100%. So things have changed then since yes. I searched oh, for it. Awesome. It's my favorite. Oh, I love, I love, I have such a sweet tooth. My sister Avery and I are always yeah. known for being in the pantry. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, Hey, I ran a couple extra miles just, just so I could have some sweets tonight. all right normal exactly okay if people want to uh find you follow you to point us to all the things where do you want to send people to where they can learn more uh uh, instagram um tiktok Mm -hmm. uh twitter is all nate nice i definitely won't be doing any dancing on tiktok Um, (laughs) my girlfriend might try to get me to dance but that ain't happening um, yeah. <laughs> so at least on camera, that's not happening. So yeah, yeah. If you have any questions or just want to chat or follow, or just follow along, uh, yeah, that would be awesome. And your podcast, I assume, is wherever podcasts can be listened to. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, it's Strides yeah. uh, Gray Wolf, and um, yeah, I'm hoping to kind of revamp that coming up, just with all the moving and racing again, and I just uh, haven't necessarily had the time, so. Um, but looking forward to definitely getting back on that here soon. We'll we'll put all of that in the show notes along with, um, I'll see if I can pull up those videos that I was watching of your gold medal performance in the 1500 in Tokyo, because that's uh, definitely worth uh, the three minutes and 58 seconds it'll take for you to watch that. So um, I'll put all of that in the show notes, but Nate, it was a real pleasure uh, having you, getting to know you, and uh, it will be very fun to keep following along with your journey. So thanks for joining us. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. It was so much fun. 